It's something for nothing. The Rush Fan Cast. Jerry and Steve with you. Hey, Jer. Hey, Steve. How are you doing? I'm doing great. We have a dream guest today on the Rush Fan Cast. Do we not? We do indeed. And I can't wait to talk to him. We're going to get right into it. You can find us on Twitter at Rush Fan Cast. Instagram, we are at The Rush Cast. Email Jerry, The Rush Cast at gmail.com. Lex did the bass intro and outro today. Vital signs. Did you know, Jared, that Lex is a shapeshifter? <laughs> it's is true. He a, is he a mood lifter? Of course he's a mood lifter. He lifts our mood every week. <laughs> Got an email for us? I do. This is from John. What's up, John? He says, I just listened to your latest episode with David DiRocco. It was very interesting to hear what's been going on behind the scenes with the development of the Neil Peart Memorial at Lakeside Park. It was also interesting for you both to mention the design firms and individuals that were shortlisted for the project, as some of them are landscape architecture firms, or at least have landscape architects on their team. I am a landscape architect myself, working with a civil engineering firm in Columbia, Maryland. So it was exciting for you to even mention the term landscape architect. Oh, nice. Or LA for short. Who knew that that was going to excite someone, right? Really? As an LA, we don't get mentioned in the general public very often, especially on my favorite Rush podcast. I mean, landscape architecture, I'm sure it doesn't come up in conversation very often, does it? Sonic landscaping comes up a lot. <laughs> <laughs> At least in our conversations nowadays. Exactly. I am very interested in following this project as it progresses. Some of the design elements that Mr. DiRocco had mentioned had my head swimming with ideas for the park. There are so many images that Neil's lyrics capture, as you well know, that could be conceptually translated into this memorial for him. This would be an absolute dream project to work on, and I am a bit envious of the teams that are getting this chance. I hope they do Neil and us fans proud. I have a feeling they will. Whenever I am designing a project, I always think of a quote by Neil. He once said that after crafting the lyrics and music for a Rush song, and after the final product is presented to the listener, his hope was that the listener understood that care had been taken. What a great concept that can be applied to anything you do in life. He was such an inspiration. Keep up the great work. You checked all the boxes for me this week. Landscape architecture, park design, and Rush. Wow. <laughs> That's incredible. We had at least one satisfied listener from that podcast. Thank you, John, for the email. That was fantastic. So, Jar, as I mentioned, we've got a great guest today on Something for Nothing, art director for Rush for more than 40 years. A new book of his work, which was written by Stephen Humphreys, is called The Art of Rush, Serving a Life Sentence. The expanded edition hits bookshelves this Tuesday, October 12th. Hugh Syme, welcome to the Rush Fancast. Well, I thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. We like to start off asking our guests, Hugh, their Rush origin story. Now, in the book, you chronicle this. Can you tell us how your relationship with Rush began? Yeah, it's, it's, it's also what I tell students who ask me, how do you get to do what you do? And I'm thinking, well, we're now all feeding off the carcass of what used to be the music business. So that's probably not the best question to be asking at this point in the history of music business. But being in a band, I was with uh, Ian Thomas and his band as a keyboard player, and we were on the same label as Rush in the 70s. And when Ray called me into, Ray Daniels called me into his office to ask if I'd like to do a Rush cover, I clearly remember thinking, well, they're not Genesis, they're super tramp. Yeah, I guess I could do something with these guys, you know, and had no clue it was the beginning of a wonderful 40-some year relationship. But, you know, we, we would tour. Max Webster, if you're familiar with that band, a really great band from Toronto at the time and headed up by a wonderful guitarist, singer, songwriter, uh, Kim Mitchell. He was on the same label and we would share opening position for Russia and we would go on tour with those bands, you know, that began our relationship. It also began their understanding that I did music and art. So that that played nicely into a few opportunities that came later where I would be in the studio at the right time and be asked to play on their albums, which was which was a, an honor and a surprise and a delight. Because most people, um, most Rush fans, obviously know you from the covers, but you did play, like you just said, on Rush songs. You played the opening of 2112. Yes, I did. How did that come about? And it was in the studio, right? When you started? We were in the studio. Um, we were really just 
I was meeting them almost for the first time, really. And I knew them to be pretty private people. So I felt pretty honored to be having pierced the veil of their militant privacy. I was in the inner sanctum talking to these guys. And Terry said, you know, hey, would you like to play something, you know, for the opening? And I, there was an art synthesizer, which I was very familiar with. And basically just envelope filters and lots of experimentation and double tracking and so on. Getty and I were basically kneeling on the floor at the time, and there was a pedal note that had to be played. And we did that part of it in one pass, but Getty was playing the pedal note and I was playing all this, all the, uh, the envelope filters and so on. And then we did a second pass and added some more embellishments. And then Getty said, I've written a song called Tears, which is kind of a, an intimate sort of song, which, you know, is calling out for some kind of treatment. So I went down the hall for three hours and worked up the parts on Mellotron and, and ARP for that song as well. So it was, it was a, a fun evening. Now, getting started doing the album covers for Rush, is it true that Neil saw some of your other work and then said, we've got to get this guy for Caress of Steel? Well, yeah, he, he had seen the work I was doing on Kim Mitchell. I did a cover with Larry Gowan at the time, who was also on the label, now plays keyboards and with sticks. And our cover, I had done about three covers for our band, and they noticed them. They liked, Neil liked them. And that led to Ray asking me if I'd like to do a cover with the band. And yeah, Caress of Steel was in my kind of, I was enamored of people like, particularly of M.C. Escher, the beautiful lithographer and draftsman. I loved his drawing. Uh, you know, I, I loved drawing in pencil. It was, a, it was a discipline that required a lot of patience. And so being offered a cover, I you know, selfishly thought, well, I'm going to take this canvas and make it my own. And it also began a tradition with this band of having the freedoms to do every cover with its own unique approach. And there was an adage that, that emerged through one of Neil's lyrics later on, which was very apropos, which was, you know, to deviate from the norm. That began very early in our career where we would, we wouldn't use a corporate logo like Chicago or Van Halen or other bands. We would always use, you know, an appropriate font and keep it a bit more retiring and less invasive than a logo would be, which suited this selfish art director just fine because I got to make the cover more about the concept and the artwork. But the, uh, the process of doing covers with these guys very quickly morphed into or evolved into, it was collaborative in the sense that I would listen to Neil's, the arc of his, his themes or his lyrics, and then I would harvest imagery from that and was afforded an immense amount of loyalty and freedom to do my own thing, which ended up being kind of my requirement with every band thereafter. It was just, you know, I, I was fortunate in my career to do that. But the pencil drawings for Caress of Steel were met with a unexpected um, treatment by the record company because they thought they were a little too retiring and, and elegant. So the blue field of color around the edge was added at AGI and by Mercury Records. The chrome lettering was added as well. So everybody was horrified when they finally saw it. And the sepia tone, which was also a very saturated brown color, was added. So it ended up, obviously, artwork and records and album covers are like memory. Music is memory, too. We all associate albums and our experiences with albums with a certain part of our life. So if, if you've become a Rush fan during Caress of Steel, that cover has become a part of your life. So, uh, you know, we can't dispute the fact that it did find a home in their discography, but it also began the process where the band didn't particularly welcome A&R people coming into their studio and saying, yeah, we like these six songs, but this one's got to go, to which they would say, and you are, and you are. <laughs> um, <laughs> so they were very quick to say, no, leave, leave us alone and leave you alone. So, and again, another luxury to have that autonomy all the way through their career was it was part of who they were. And therefore, by association, I was afforded the same luxury. Now, the process you hinted at is something that continued throughout your association with the band, right? Yeah. Obviously, you have to start these these covers maybe while they're still recording or toward the end of recording. You haven't heard the full songs yet. You have the lyrics. And maybe they'll change even between the time you get a copy of them and up. But you have the theme, and then you're like, go. Not even some, you know. One of the things about Rush 
you know, there are times, you know, with Roll the Bones, we had to discuss a little bit of the arc on that. Certainly with Test for Echo, there was some discussion, some in-depth discussions about how the Inuit required landmarks to navigate their way through the bleak, featureless, snowy tundra, you know, that, so the Inukshuk, there became a reason for that existing in the Test for Echo cover. But very rarely did I, I mean, I, I sometimes got a fax or I would get a FedEx delivery all pre-internet of Neil's hand-drawn lyrics. Because any Rush fan knows he has a propensity to draw his lyrics and draw the heading of the song. I would get those sometimes before or during the process, but more often than not with this band, when they Neil never failed to give me very provocative. I mean, he gave me the best titles ever in terms of mm-hmm. his being a wordsmith signals you know uh, moving pictures all these things were so dense with imagery they spoke for themselves and i often as a nature when i when i heard moving pictures i knew immediately what that cover was going to be not exactly how it was going to look but i knew exactly what the intent of that cover was going to be permanent ways wasn't met so readily when i mentioned a girl walking with a home permanent tony (laughs) hair you know hairdo and a tidal wave and so on. I mean, they, they heard it, but the room was a bit, a bit underwhelmed, a little, a little quiet, <laughs> you know, leave your name with the girl at the, at the door. We'll get in touch. You know, right. we, we, I mean, it's quite well documented. It may not be new to your listeners, but we were going to bring in medical technicians and wire them all up for electroencephalograms, brainwave studies. We were going to take a certain section of music, a certain passage of music, or a measure in in the recording and see what Neil's brain was doing, what Getty's brain was doing. And as physiology refers also to heart rate and so on. So we're going to have that graphic on the front cover, very intelligent and minimal. And I think the police came out with synchronicity, which also had three strips Mm -hmm. representing each band member. So we passed on that. And that's when I said, you know, how about that girl walking out of the tidal wave? And Getty called me three days later and said, we love it. We're going to do that. Of course, I panicked and thought, where am I going to find a title with? So, <laughs> <laughs> these were, you know, well before the days when I could just kind of cruise the internet to find great imagery. Right. But I did find the name of Flip Schulke. He was the time life disaster photographer. I did some research through a, a local stock agency in Toronto and they gave me his name. I called him. I Back in those brazen, youthful days, I would just, I'd never think anything about calling and I called down to Mobile, Alabama and his wife answered the phone, you know, with a pretty thick Southern accent. And, and uh, I said, I'm calling for Flip. Well, he's on the roof getting the tree out of the attic. And I said, what's the tree doing in the attic? Well, we just had a hurricane, which was, I thought, rather ironic. But he, he had an image of the Galveston uh, hurricane with the tidal wave coming over the bathhouse in Galveston. And I asked him, how involved would it be to have this? He said, well, it's not that involved. I'll print it up and send it to you. I said, well, what, what kind of cost? And I'm thinking, time life, this is going to be $20,000. He said, I don't know, 500 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> it was just so wonderful talking to that man and, and having him be so generous and so accommodating. you know. But each cover, I was allowed the freedom and I was given a title and I was left to my own sort of devices for the most part notwithstanding test for echo because that was that was born of a postcard that neil had sent me from from the yukon territories and he definitely liked the the inukshuk but i couldn't find one that would match the beautiful inukshuk on that postcard and nor could we find the source image or the photographer that took that picture so after all my efforts to find a rock cairn that looked as much like a man as that one did i decided to build it and i sculpted that out of florist foam and plaster of paris and painted it and it's a 22 inch tall model that sits on my desk to this day now you worked very closely with neil peart in particular over the years can you tell us a little bit about working with neil did his thoughts and ideas do you feel it elevated your work in any way well yeah well we were partners in crime to be sure and certainly i had you know i was true to you know to his themes and again, there are times when I would just come in and brazenly say, we got to have guys moving pictures. This is, this is the cover. Sometimes it was just an immediate knee-jerk reaction like that. You know, signals, the dog and the fire hydrant was also something I just, when I heard the term subdivision, I thought this is all about suburbia. And I was, I, and I was a big fan of David Lynch and, 
and you know all the the high key color of that particular era but neil neil and i every record every every project was different you know sometimes it was i was allowed the freedom to go and do what i what i do but he spoke well he wrote well his his letters and his emails to me always had indentation salutations and so on it was always very he lamented the loss of paper and actual mail when emails came along he was kind of a romantic person that way he would be the first person to call me and say it's time to do a cover and then we would look at the songs make lists of potential imagery because as we developed as the art director and the musicians kind of progressed you know when we lost the album which was a big frame of reference that we all lamented losing that that one big square turned into 28 small squares you know so suddenly a window closed and a door opened it wasn't i didn't lament the loss of a big canvas because that band also did vinyl anyways because they were big enough to to afford that so i always thought big even though i knew the art would end up on a four and three quarter inch square but the beauty was that we could indulge in illustrating every song you know i think we started at test for echo doing that but it, it was a or was it roll the bones i forget but we uh, we gave ourselves the opportunity to to address every song as a unique theme and illustrate that song with with the artwork. So Neil was, you know, he was very well-spoken and he obviously communicated beautifully what he had in mind, but he wasn't dogmatic, wasn't dictatorial about, you know, imagery. Yeah. He allowed, I guess the, the band itself was about trying new things and seeing if they stuck. Right. I mean, that just seems to be the ethos of the band in general. And I obviously it would come through in the, in the art as well. Well, that's why when I eventually heard that beautiful credo, you know, deviate from, you've got to deviate from the norm. I thought that's the essence of who they were. You know, the, the fact that we could get a title like counterparts and I was allowed to say that cover is going to be a nut and a bolt, even though, (laughs) even though that was met with some resistance, not like you got to keep thinking that's a horrible idea resistance, but it was, it was definitely met with a certain amount of silence. They kind of had to sleep on that one, but Neil and I, we got so heavily into the the counterpart, we call it the prayer, which ended up being printed inside that package because we, wasn't a competition, but it kind of was, you know, I'd, I'd say salt and pepper, you go yin and yang, I'd say <laughs> tortoise and hare, you'd say lock, stock and barrel. And, you know, he was the one that continued on, added ribbed and lubricated slap and tickle, <laughs> all, all these cool word pairings. But it also spoke to how we both had a, an immense respect and interest in language you know and in glib humor too i mean that's that's the other beauty of working with a band like that what band opens their shows with with uh, a licensed footage of the three stooges you know or it, it, it was a perfect match it was fabulous that this happened to be my lot in life now i can't think of a subject more perfect for a coffee table book than your artwork you why did you decide to create this book i knew in my you know, we all think about this as, as people who create and have had these long relationships. You know, I thought, well, we've definitely built kind of a bit of a dynasty here in terms of the archive that I've developed. I knew that sometime in my career, you know, it's always that maybe tomorrow kind of. That's, you know, why it's so poignant now to read Neil's prophetic line that we're only immortal for a limited time. And he and I used to also share another adage, which was we are we're reluctant adults and perpetual adolescents because of this industry that we're in. It allows us this illusion of youth, even though it's still an illusion. You know, I I wasn't like a lot of Rush fans where I'd, I'd go to 30 shows in a given tour. I, I might have seen a total of 30 shows in my 40 years, which is a travesty to a real fan. But when I did take my daughters one time to see the band, we were also with a friend of mine who went to get some beer and he lined up. I didn't. I just stood to the side and he called my name. And then he, I kind of heard him. I was looking for him. And then he called my name and he added my last name to it. And then somebody standing near me said, who said that? And it was like, suddenly he was grabbing every male in my vicinity saying, are you Hugh Simon? I, I go, oh my God, he's coming to over to me. And my daughter are standing and watching this. And he finally comes up to me and I confessed to being who I am. And and he said that he and his blogger friends from Vancouver had already come across Canada and seen five shows. And, and he, showed, he lifted 
no, he had the star man on his shoulder, but he, his friend lifted his shirt up and the entire necromancer from caress of steel was on his chest. It was beautiful ink. Wow. Um, suddenly I saw this kind of this passion, this devotion. And my daughters kept saying everywhere I, where we look, we see something that you've done, dad. So they, they started texting me relentlessly, you know, badgering me and saying, how's the book coming? And I hadn't really started it. So it was writing on the wall that I had to step up and do it. So they inspired me and cajoled to where I kind of relented. And it wasn't that I wasn't thinking of doing something like this at some point anyways, but it helped lend focus and a sense of urgency to doing it, you know, actually getting around to doing it. And it was a lot of work, unearthing all that work and, and preparing it for print and so on. It was a huge amount of archiving. And and then there's all the interviews and all the stories to tell. It was it was a fun project, but it was a big undertaking. It took a good part of 18 months to mount the whole book. And now this edition has artwork from the 40th anniversary editions. So for the 40th anniversary editions, you had to go back. Did you unearth these alternate ideas or did were these brand new ones with you know decades of new eyes on them well you you answered the question with fresh eyes and a new skill set and the fact that these were more elaborate and extravagant than any studio album ever was the fact that this lucky art director was afforded the luxury of revisiting all those lyrics but by going back and reading with fresh eyes lyrics and sometimes refamiliarizing myself with these lyrics and harvesting that imagery from these songs. And because these box sets had these hardcover 40 page books that were being added to the, to the mix, I was able to look at each song with a new perspective and, and also indulge in creating artwork because I knew that we would have the real estate in the book to do that. But in the first five of those 2112 farewell to Kings hemispheres permanent waves and the still unreleased moving pictures it gave me an opportunity to kind of indulge so it it seemed to be a a foregone conclusion that since the first book sold out you know happy to say let's add an addendum you know which we are to the new book now how difficult was it hugh to come up with a new idea to update such an iconic album cover as permanent waves i actually think the new cover might be better than the original thank you and i try not to you know freak myself out and get intimidated by because i know that there would be a lot of naysayers out there saying how dare you and and so on but i also know that because it celebrates something entirely new you know there's there's a lot of people in the business and there's a term that's been coined called cash grab which i think is very appropriate for some some projects that aren't really new they're kind of repackaging something that existed before Whereas these box sets have got never before heard remixed performances and sometimes video footage from 78 or from 76, you know, so it was everybody's intention that these box sets be really special. So the selfish side, I don't think I necessarily improved on every cover. I just wanted to make sure that the cover was special and unique, even though we would celebrate the original album cover within the package and within the box set itself. I tried to rise to that occasion of, of deviating from the norm once again, just doing something unique for these celebrational boxes. And frankly, I'm a, I'm a selfish art director, and it was an opportunity to indulge. Now, I wanted to circle back a little bit to the Rush logos, because it is something that I don't think I've really ever seen any other band do, because usually bands are looking for something marketable and identifiable that they could be like, ah, that's the band. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking, you know, Aerosmith has the wings, yeah. you know what I mean? Things like that. Rush didn't do that. What's going on there? <laughs> <laughs> well, to the dismay of the management who was, you know, 2112, I was sort of taking my cue from management. Let's just keep it big and bright. Well, we did, you know, we certainly did that. And uh, again, knowing that I, I, mean, I was a huge fan of hypnosis and, and Storm and his work, I felt that something like a Megadeth or a Van Halen or an Aerosmith logo, which often sort of, I'll use the word invade, it invaded the real estate of the cover. It had to be so prominent that any kind of conceptual work that came around it was kind of eclipsed by the the omnipresence of that form, that brand. The band early on 
was clearly trying to make every project they did different sonically, you know, and, and they wanted to progress. And I, I guess I contrivedly said, well, why don't we adhere to that same adage that we continue to be progressive on the covers? Let's let the artwork be a statement in and of itself, and let's not get bound by the corporate brand of, of, of a band's logo so that we are free to kind of, and then I, I think I coined the phrase again, contrivedly said, you know, confident minimalism, let's communicate who you are. Let's put the title on there, but let's not let it um, overwhelm the concept. So consequently the band did have a long history of, of conceptual covers with confidently retiring monikers, you know, their band name and their titles were always subtle. And I thought that was a testament to their own confidence and confidence in the music. How do you feel about the fact that the Starman has sort of become Rush's de facto logo? You see that on the back of everyone's jean jacket. Yeah. The Starman's everywhere. How do you feel about that? Again, pretty well documented. It's a happy accident. You know, knowing that the arc of that story was that there'd be someone, some creative, free thinking individual in defiance of of the dogma of the red star of the evil federation, I instinctively said, well, we're going to pare down this individual to his, to his naked essence. And the word naked came out and I thought, you know what, let's make this guy pure in the sense that, you know, he just be defying the, the oppression of the red star of the federation. So it was really a no brainer to say, I want a, a hero and this symbol of the red star of the federation. They came together as just kind of an obvious, solution to that duality not ever thinking that it would become as as you know recognizable an icon and, and as enduring an icon as it did but you know that's that's okay it seems to be embraced by the band because of just the naturalistic way that it was adopted by fans right it became synonymous with the band because of the fans as opposed to the other way around yeah i I think as you know, I, have, I often say music is memory. I mean, we, you know, we can't disassociate where we were. We, we can't divorce ourselves from where we were when we first heard a song or when certain music came into our life, whether it's the Mamas and Papas or Elton John or the Beatles or, or Moody Blues or Led Zeppelin. I know exactly where I was and I know exactly what portion of my life that music entered my life. And it, it, it is a soundtrack, and so are the visual parts of these projects. They become a part of the fabric of who we, we associate or how we associate imagery. You know, I can't, I can't think of blind faith without remembering that girl on the chromium plane, you know. Mm. Um, and I can't think of any band, you know, without thinking of their, their covers on some level. That becoming the, you know, the, the icon that it did, as, as they say, was an accident. And, the fact that it kind of applied anywhere along their career. Uh, we were careful not to overuse it, of course, but that didn't stop, as you say, becoming a jean jacket or a tattoo or a, a representation of who that band is. Now let's talk about some of my favorite uh, album covers, if that's okay. Sure. Just because, as everybody knows, just the, the breadth and scope of album cover to album cover is unprecedented, I think, in, in music. Oh, thank you. Well, you I mean you go from from album covers like a farewell to kings to hold your fire mm-hmm. and hold your fire is one of my favorite album covers mm-hmm. but it seems deceptively simple looking but it's not really well the cover itself you know there are a lot of people most notably like the management who are thinking wait a minute it cost how much to create that miniature city set and to have the man juggling fireballs and you're putting it on the inner gatefold. I mean, he was mortified at the fact that I was, I wanted that to be the liquid center of the candy. You, you know, you would see the, the cover and it would be retiring and again, confidently minimal, just the three balls, which would be configured in exactly the same coordinates as the fireballs being juggled by um, Stanley on the interior for a while. It was going to be Dennis Hopper, but his schedule didn't work out. So, we almost had Dennis Hopper being our, our juggler. But yeah, it's the same thing. That's the same theory behind the nut and the bolt for counterparts. Every once in a while, you just want to exercise that kind of cheeky minimalism. Um, and we did so on the red. You know, and red's a very rush co- color. 
And creating that cover, it was intended to be a, a hard-hitting, recognizable you know, study in red. I mean, that's, that's where that came from. But reversing the priorities of the much more cinematic interior to the much more retiring cover was intentional. Now, one of my favorite covers, Hugh, is Grace Under Pressure. It's just beautiful. Can you tell us the story behind that one? Well, yeah. Um, I was at Neil's house one evening and we were talking about it. He and I were both fans of you know the ECM uh, albums by people like Keith Jarrett. And we also understood that's sort of where some of our sense of minimalism, you know, uh, we wanted to do something that was very Mark Rothko in its look and feel, just fields of color representing something foreboding and something comforting. So grace under pressure. The fraction came along later that the P over G was again, kind of a algebraic pun, if you will, that became kind of a, a motif, which again took root as the icon for that whole campaign. We were originally thinking for grace under pressure, let's just have the pressure be kind of a, an ominous gray and the grace just be a nice relaxing cream color. Let's just do a a field of kind of painted gray and a cream field, a very jazz album cover. You know, again, we're going to be very indulgent and exercise those tastes of our own. Isolated from all the expectations of rock and roll, we were going to do this. And then as the Armagnac started to uh, take hold of the evening, and we did drink an obscene amount of our amount of Armagnac that night, we started sketching and he said, well, why don't we make it more elemental? Why, is there any reason why we can't make the pressure like barometric pressure, like bad weather, you know, heavy weather? Let's have the the grace be something more fluid, like like water. And and so I did a sketch on a napkin, which I still have to this day, which I, I treasure. I did a sketch of that and then went away and made a painting of what we discussed that evening. But it went a long way from being super, super minimal. Now, is there a, a, a conscious effort to move back and forth between cover album cover art that is more intricate like power windows and something that's not as intricate like you said uh counterparts is there any thought like well we've done something like a a huge involved painting let's not do that this time well you know it might be yeah it's a good question um i don't think it was conscious Paintings are such a commitment. Um, I only did the three. I did uh, Grace Under Pressure, Power Windows, and uh, Vapor Trails, and the portraits within Vapor Trails. Those were the only time that I could unplug long enough to do, though the cover for Vapor Trails was done in a day. I mean, it was just my way of illustrating to Neil what I had in mind because he was heading down the, the NASA photography ideas, and I thought they were a little too textbooked and a little bit fundamental and boring. So. I said, we've got to have something with a bit more urgency because at that time he had been in a pretty dark place. And it was his phrase when he came up for air after his wife and his daughter passing. He did say to me, and it was extremely prophetic and profound when he said, you know, we, we sparkle and we fade. And I said, so that's where, where the whole idea of the comet and the uh, vapor trail comes from. And he said, yeah. So I said, well, then it can't be a NASA photo as much as they're you know brilliant and documenting a pretty special part of nature i said it needs to be more urgent more passionate and leave it with me and the following day i did kind of whip off the painting and i said something like this and he he came back to me no that i said no (laughs) and i said well no let me let me let me get it right he said no you're you're like a musician in the studio saying you can get it better and you do 30 more takes and they're never as good. So trust me as your, as your producer, young man, that's my cover. So mm-hmm. is that something that that happened uh, more than once where you would present something and be like something like this. And he'd be like, no, no, that was the only time that, cause I really did. I mean, literally that was done as just kind of a, I wanted it to be urgent. I wanted it to be kind of um, aggressive and pr- primitive and I think I accomplished all that, but little did I know it was, you know, a fait accompli. Now, in the book, the story is told about Snakes and Arrows. Now, the, the album cover you came up with for that did not end up being the actual cover, correct? Oh, that stupid cover, yeah. Um, <laughs> no. Well, 
the dangers of Google. You know, Neil had discovered Google at that point, and he, you know, it was his is his album. And when that album, for some reason, that album cover was kind of leaked. I think through the record company in England, somebody got chastised for leaking that. But in the in the aftermath of that cover being leaked, um, my friend, guitarist in another band sent me a whole bunch of blogs and outcries and you know all these people being incensed by the fact that this wasn't my a Hugh Syme cover and that you could buy this board game on Amazon. So they were all saying, you know, that's just too off the shelf for Rush. And I sort of said to Neil, you know, I, I wouldn't be doing my job if I wasn't sort of being your art director, emphasis on director. Yes, my nose is a little out of joint if this is where you're going, of course. I had confessed to the fact that this would be a first. I said, but there's a bit of an outcry going on to which he said, when those people form their own band, they can make those decisions for themselves. You know, so he was pretty quick to sort of point out that that's what he wanted. So, you know, that became the slipcase cover and that's fine. You know, I mean, I just hoped it wasn't the precedence of, of the band just kind of finding off the shelf artwork in future. Gratefully, it wasn't. But I also had an opportunity on the CD booklet and on the and the vinyl and so on to just do my own thing. And he he sort of slyly said, "I see you got your licks in, anyways." By doing <laughs> <laughs> and and I did, and he's he loved it. So it was he gets it, and that was a beautiful paint Harish Johari, and it's a gorgeous painting. It's a gorgeous piece. It's just a stupid rush cover. <laughs> <laughs> so even with you, a, a trusted insider a trusted friend a trusted collaborator neil just he didn't take uh you know too many influences to heart ever did he he was just like no this is i think this is the best thing for it just like with the a and r guys and any kind of yeah. management guys he was just like i think this is the best i have a vision this is it yeah well he didn't dictate visions you see only in the case of of test for echo that where he found the the inix and it was a lovely postcard. I, you know, we had to rise to the occasion of rendering that particular inukshuk, which is why I sculpted it. Honestly, this band afforded me all the latitude. You know, it was a luxurious um, situation where their faith and loyalty to me was was unprecedented. You know, it was a forty-some year ride. Very rarely, I don't think, if ever, was there ever a suggestion, except for that conversation I just had with you about you know, grace under pressure that just evolved and it kind of became kind of a, a unanimous idea that we would kind of do something like that. And then I went away and did the painting, but the only time there was a bit of a, a change of course was when I did the painting for power windows, we were talking about this lone boy sitting in a room trying to command the world with his remote control. And they liked that. We were already talking about how, you know, well before cell phones, you know, the, the power window to our world was television. And I said, so this boy's television is the window. And I, I steered them towards the window as being his window to the world, that he would be controlling it with a remote control. Though we did discuss the media is the message by Marshall McLuhan, which was referring to the power of television, the uh, manipulation of advertising, you know, the media is the message kind of thing. And that is Marshall's quote. I ignored that. I liked the empty, lonely room and I finished the painting, brought it to the studio and the guys loved it. You know, we went about other things and then Getty kind of said, you know, what about those TVs? What, what happened to my TVs? And I, said, <laughs> I said, well, I just thought the room looked more somber and more kind of moody. He said, yeah, but I love that Marshall McLuhan, you know, the, the twist on the mind. Yeah, I, I do too, but. I think this is really good. And he sort of looked at me and said, but, but I don't think it's as good as it could be. And I thought, well, okay, what do you, you want those TVs? So I went to the, the Red Indian uh, Deco Art Deco store on Queen Street in Toronto and found three beautiful uh, TVs, photographed them for reference, went in and literally re-gessoed the whole area of the canvas with white gesso just to accommodate those TVs, which was really all before Photoshop, where I could have dropped them in on a layer and made you know, much simpler work of that. I actually had to go in and tape off the shape of the TVs and gesso it and paint those televisions in the post, if you will, um, after the fact. So it was an analog revision. 
but to Getty's credit to this day, I think it's a, it was a, a wise uh, suggestion and insistence. Now, I know this may be like choosing between children, but are there any particular Rush album covers that you are most proud of? Favorites? Well, I'm, I'm proud of many of them for different reasons. As far as kind of a cover having a special place in my, my history and my heart, Power Windows, um, I painted, it was about a three-month painting. And during that period of time, my father was literally fighting for his last breaths as he was dealing with his his final days with emphysema and he passed during that painting. So I can't see that painting without knowing that time in my life. It was a pretty po- poignant time in my life, but you know, there's, there's I, mean, I love the Anuk Shuk. I love Tespareko. I love the, the boy on the, the subway platform, kicking the skull down the sidewalk. You know, there's a lot of images that I've done that I'm happy with. Can you tell us at all about, the artwork for the upcoming moving pictures box set. Any, any secrets you can share with us? No. (laughs) (laughs) What about album covers designed by others? Do you have any favorite album covers by other artists that you love? Yeah. I mean, I, I love for different reasons, covers that, you know, I mean, again, music is memory. You know, when I saw the revolver cover, I thought it was a great album and it was a great time in my life. I was living in England at the time it was fabulous i thought and again these aren't necessarily great covers so that was a nice klaus Forman ink drawing hmm. the white cover was beautifully cheeky and a cover only the beatles could get away with you know we are the beatles we can presumptuously put no art on our cover and still be recognized as the beatles you know i thought it was wonderfully cheeky you know wish you were here is brilliant um hmm. storm's work was fabulous um Dark Side of the Moon was a beautifully iconic cover too. And it it wasn't lost on me that minimalism like that can also be famous and profound. Seeing that was certainly inspirational to me. And I'm not, I'm not saying counterparts rose to the, the glory of Dark Side of the Moon, but it gave me the confidence to say, you don't need to have dungeons and dragons and, and wizards and, and all kinds of over-the-top imagery to make a cover profound or, or work. You know, right. It also still has to reflect the the meaning of the music inside of it, right? Well, I I don't know if I agree with that because there are times when I think, well, if I sat in a room saying, okay, what do you think if we had two guys in black suits standing in an abandoned back lot in Burbank and they're shaking hands <laughs> and one guy's back and head is on fire? I think that would be really good for Wish You Were Here. And I could see a band saying, "You're nuts. That's a stupid idea." You know, or that's. Right. What's that got to do with that title? You know, it's only because of history and because of it being a brilliant image that it earns its place in history and it deserves its place in history. But I don't think, I don't know that every cover I've done for Rush necessarily tells you about what's inside or, or speak, you know, speaks to the title always, you know. So you think it's it's more of a, a retroactive kind of. Yeah, yeah thinking on the on the on the listener's part that this now that we have this cover we just associate it with what's on the inside yeah i think that's you know i mean i don't think we've ever been completely i mean obviously moving pictures is pretty obvious permanent waves is pretty obvious counterparts is pretty obvious so i don't think we've ever not served the title but there are times when we were very obtuse in that in that effort and intentionally so just just roll the bones doesn't i mean if it's just a great opportunity to have a, a, a cool image you know right and i guess i guess it, it was one way of uh denoting a kick the can gag when in fact it was a human skull so yeah i i think be, being free to loosely interpret things is also there's a place for that let me ask the moving pictures question a different way hugh how is it putting together rush's album art without neil do you feel an added responsibility to do what neil would have wanted it would betray my own sense of, of responsibility that always existed. When I got a call from Neil saying, we're doing an album, it's time to talk album cover. I never once said to myself, well, of course you're going to call me. I'm, you know, yes, I, I innately knew I was their art director and I was always grateful for that recurring loyalty and business, you know, because it was a great opportunity. But I, w- I would always hang the phone up with that sense of, yes, you know, it's, this is another opportunity for me to clear the decks 
and really focus on my oldest and dearest client and friends, Rush. So that had always been my credo, my approach to who they are. So it doesn't change if Neil's not here. I still I still have to rise to the occasion of achieving what the band needs and band might want. And it's the same process. It's the same sense of uh, privilege that I've always enjoyed. So I brought it then and I still bring it, I hope, now. Now, Hugh, uh, why don't you tell us about your podcast? You've got a podcast called the Music Buzz Podcast. Can you tell us about that? And have you enjoyed putting that together? Well, yeah, I'm probably the least musicologically profound person on the podcast because Dane Clark, who, who's the drummer for Mellencamp, is a voracious reader and a huge musicological geek when it comes to, and he prepares for the interviews beautifully. I crib the day before, you know, I'll go, oh, really? That's Shirley's the drummer from Humble Pie? Okay. He's the drummer from Humble Pie. Yeah. Okay. So I'll go and check. And my role in, in the interviews, uh, and, and I do often get into the music because that's my love too. And I've surprised myself, you know, when I was talking to several of the musicians, um, some of whom I've known, like Rudy Sarzo and Jim McCarty, the drummer from the Yardbirds, and Larry Gowan, of course, because I grew up with Larry. Those occasions were like old home week. We could digress and talk about anything we wanted to, and that would get edited later, much like what we're doing now. But uh, what I found really cool about this was that, apart from speaking to people I knew, I mean, I got to speak to Kyle Cook, and that ended up, you know, with my working with Kyle on an album. We, as a result of doing Steve Hackett, I mean, he he came to the Gasworks, which is where everybody in Toronto cut their teeth as a band. He came to see the band that I was with years ago, and was very complimentary and you know getting to talk to him was a, a real buzz you know um don barnes nils lofgren you know i mean people that i i've always enjoyed roger joseph manning jr who i've always admired as a he's kind of like a van dyke parks kind of musician a beautiful musician we just finished doing a, a john Waite, which was great because i worked with him on uh the baby another baby's uh bad english and then we just we did peter frampton the other day which was two days ago it was fabulous speaking to these people and they're so approachable and they tell great stories. And I find this whole thing extremely gratifying to do because I, I really enjoy speaking to these people. And sometimes it's a dead end street. Some of these people have no regard for artwork and I'll say, so tell me about the artwork. And go, I don't care about artwork. You know, I just want to, I just want to play music. I leave that to the label. So that conversation is truncated pretty quickly when I hear someone talk about that. And occasionally I'll ask someone, so how important growing up when you were buying albums and so on, how important, how much did the album cover speak to you? That sometimes sparks a great involved and in-depth response because everybody that grows up caring about the album covers and how they, what kind of shelf appeal they had in record stores and so on, that sometimes brings about a nice 10, 15 minute conversation. I mean, Peter Frampton's father was an illustrator. And as soon as I started talking about art, he, he brought out a pen and ink drawing that he reveres to this day that his father did, you know? So yeah, these conversations go where they do organically, but the opportunity to speak to these people that I've had such high regard for over the years, it's gratifying and it's been a lot of fun. You've been so generous with your time here. We really appreciate it. We want to wrap it up with a quote from Neil about you. I can offer no higher tribute than this in four decades of my life and work. Every recording, tour book, instructional DVD, or published work that has my name on it has Hugh's name on it. How does that make you feel, Hugh? As you read it now, and as I read it when I first read it, it was the, the, that and his wonderful turn of phrase that I was serving a life sentence as the art director for Rush, um, for which he would never grant me parole. I thought, well, there's a man that not only knows how to communicate, but he knows how to you know, break your heart. He's, 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 uh, beautifully generous in that forward for that book. I mean, I, I said, I'd love to have a few words from you and boy, did he, did he rise to the occasion? I think that's one of the highlights of the book is that forward. Well, Hugh, thanks so much for your time today. I know I speak for all rush fans when I say we appreciate all the work you've done over the past 40 plus years for rush. Thanks for joining us today on the rush Fancast. It's been my pleasure guys. Thanks for your interest. So, Jared, when we started this podcast, we came up with a list of people that we would love to speak to. And Hugh Syme was at the top of the list. Yeah. 
he was, I think, literally at the top of the list. He might have even been before Getty and Alex. Well, probably because we didn't think it was possible we could even speak to Getty or Alex. <laughs> but how great was that conversation? Hugh is such a great guy. He is such a great guy. To take time out, talk to us. It was just fantastic. We've been, we've been going back and forth with the publisher for a, a couple of weeks, and it was just great to finally, finally talk to the man. It was well worth it. I mean, he's created so many iconic images for Rush over the years, and they're all incredible, all of them. Yeah. And just like the guys in the band, humble about his contribution to all of our lives. Because <laughs> yeah. it's true, as he mentioned before, you know, he was talking about other album covers that he remembers, but mm-hmm. I'm not sure. I'm sure he, he's aware of the fact that his album covers are like that for all Rush fans. Yeah. That there are parts of our lives that are just connected to his artwork in a way that most of us can't even explain. And I think in the course of the conversation, you guys hit on something that's so true. It's not the album cover that reflects the music. When you listen to the music, you think of the album cover. When I listen to Permanent Waves, I think of that iconic album cover every time. Yeah. And um, at some point, they're just inescapable. There's so many album covers like he was talking about. He was talking about albums from his childhood. There's tons that I still think of to this day, like that first Cars album cover. Mm-hmm. I love that album cover. Yeah. That's just a great album cover. I knew he wouldn't answer the question about moving pictures, but I can't <laughs> wait. I can't wait to see what he did with the, the 40th anniversary. It's going to be amazing. I know. I know. I can't wait. I don't even know when it's coming out. I hope this year. Yeah, really? This is the year, right? It'll also be the 41st anniversary. <laughs> you can find us on Twitter. We are at RushFanCast. Instagram, you can find us at the TheRushCast. Email Jerry. Let him know what you thought of our conversation with Hugh Syme at TheRushCast at gmail.com. Lex did the bass intro and outro. He's amazing. And Jerry, I hope you have a quote to wrap this up for us. Yeah, I'm just going to quote again from Vital Signs, which we did only last week, if I'm not mistaken. But I'm only going to use one line. Okay. And he mentioned it a couple of times. Everybody got to deviate from the norm. So true. So true. Thanks, Jer. It is. See you later.